A very sincere welcome to all of you, particularly, of course, this time to those of you who have come a very long way, the longest from Australia, down under. I know how long, because I go there every year. It's not an easy journey. And uh, if you feel tired during the day, well, it's just part of the trip. <laughs> it takes a while to get over it. <laughs> so um, you have to do the best you can. And uh, those of you who have come from America, it's also not right next door. And then we have some from other countries in Europe. And of course, my German friends. For those of you who may be in Germany for the first time, or even in this part of Germany for the first time, I'd like to say something about this part of Germany and also the place where you find yourself. If you know it already, never mind. Um, in southern Bavaria. Bavaria is a, one of the provinces of Germany. And we speak Bavarian here. It's a little difficult for us who come from the northern part of Germany to understand when one gets used to anything. Um, they understand us all right. No problem. It's just the other way around. Bavaria is famous for its very friendly people, its beautiful churches, and very good food, and the Alps. We've got the Alps, which you can't see too much of from here. But when you come to Buddha House, those of you who do come, you will see them. Uh, they are even in summer, mostly snow-covered on top, which is very nice to see because we've got green meadows in front of us and snow to see. They're, um, the Alps, which you see in Bavaria, are sort of like the uh, division between Germany and Switzerland or also Germany and Austria. We are very near to Austria here. I don't know if we have any Austrian people. Yeah, we have Austrians. We have some Swiss. And uh, I think we're only 40 kilometers from Austria. So we're really in the southeast of Germany, if that makes gives you any idea where we find ourselves. This monastery here is run by, well, the abbot would say is running it, and he will come and uh, greet you on Monday. He makes it a point of greeting the meditators. He's extremely happy to have meditators here of any kind. <laughs> but particularly also Buddhist because he's been to Japan in a Zen monastery and he himself uh, had a Zen woman teacher here in Germany and she was also from Berlin just as I am and I dare say I probably remind, her, remind him of her a bit he hasn't said so but I guess I do in a way 
and he gave us a lovely welcome in our first course which we had here two weeks ago and he said then and he may repeat it again but in case he doesn't I will say it now <laughs> that the doors and the hearts of this place are open to all of you he is really keen to have this connection and the books he has written which of course he will not mention um, are one uh, a few of them are about the Jesus prayer they're all in German um, which is like a mantra a mantra meditation which he has done for 25 years and the other books which he has written which are extremely interesting are about the mystics of the different ages like Johannes Tauler, Meister Eckhart and lately we found one that was about Madame Guyon who's very unknown actually but his understanding is in that respect the same as mine that we're all trying to get to the same place whichever method we use methods differ there's no doubt about it but what I'm trying to say is that they're very happy to have us here and you will see also or maybe you have already noticed that they're very welcoming this is a Benedict monastery and the order of Saint Benedict is uh, well first of all famous for ora et labora which means uh, pray and work which we also underwrite um, but it's also famous for hospitality the stranger is always welcome and that was one of the rules of Saint Benedict there's a whole rule book many of the rules of Saint Benedict are very much akin to the rules of the Buddha and one of them which we found out today one of the rules of St. Benedict is that every day one should think of one's own death and that's one of the daily recollections of the Buddha which we will certainly be doing and we found that very interesting so this monastery here is one of the famous monasteries in Germany and uh, I have read about it a bit um, they have a little pamphlet but it's all in German and they have had 13 saints here over the years the, um, I wrote down all the um, uh, years because I know that Americans and Australians can hardly visualize the age of these things now if you come from England of course it's nothing I mean the things are just as old there but in Australia and America if anything is a hundred years old it's almost impossible to remember that that, that old well this church that you may have looked into or have seen already from the outside you're welcome to go in when there's no uh, nothing else that you need to do for the, in the course was first built in the year 731 um, it then had a lot of ups and downs it uh, was, had the fire and it had all sorts of difficulties and it was built as a Gothic church and that was the thing in Germany more than anything else in fact probably quite 
um, monopolizing the church building. Gothic churches, as a rule, are somewhat austere. I can think I can leave somewhat away. Are austere, and they are also very often dark inside. Well, Bavarians don't like dark places very much. They are they like uh, have joy and uh, you know have have a nice and light. So in the year 1718, it was rebuilt as a Baroque church, as you see it today. Now the rebuilding is mostly inside. The outside didn't have to be much changed, but it's the inside. And as you see it today, it has the typical Bavarian inside. It is, this is one of the best examples of a Bavarian Baroque church I have seen. I haven't seen all of them, obviously, but we have looked at several because most of them are tourist attractions. Uh, this one is in a way, also um, tourists come and look at it, but it's certainly a working church. We've been to service there, and uh, so it's in, uh, in operation. And as you will have a look at it, you will see what I mean, unless you have seen it already, that here in Bavaria, uh, people like everything, but particularly their churches, colorful and joyful. And that's what that one is. It's a, one of the best examples. A very interesting thing I came to my notice about the church, which I'd certainly like to share with you. There's a side altar of Mary, Mother of God. And in the, on the ceiling, many of the wonderful frescoes are on the ceiling. She is pouring out the milk of grace over humanity and there are only four continents Australia wasn't there <laughs> it was made that fresco in 1450 1450 in the year 1450 no Australia so uh, the age um, of the things here uh, especially churches and monasteries and of course also the uh, centers of the little towns are uh, quite um, interesting when one comes from one of the uh, new countries that's why this one's called old country huh? I read about this and I thought oh well that I must share that with you that's very interesting isn't it no Australia one of the the oldest tombstone they have in that church is from the year 1289. The, one of the abbots was buried there and the tombstone is there. Although there have been many um, ups and downs for that church, uh, still some of the very old things are there. We were shown today one of the, um, I don't even know what to call it to tell you the truth, <laughs> one of the uh, clothing uh, items that are worn for high mass and uh, he opened the cupboard and there are dozens of them and he said oh well they're all not very valuable they're not interesting and they all looked fantastic 
But this one, he says, this one is very uh, nice. That's from the year 1540. So that was the oldest one. And it's in perfect condition, as far as I can see. It looked perfectly all right. And they might even be using it, I don't know. One of the very interesting things which I found in the church today, we had a bit of a uh, look around, was that one of the ceiling frescoes, there were ten virtues depicted. They were not only paintings of them, um, symbolism of painting, but also in Latin their names. And uh, although my Latin has never been very good, in fact it was terrible, uh, I can still make out a few of the words. So I could see that nine of them were identical with the virtues that the Buddha recommends on the path to enlightenment. So I thought that was very interesting. Another thing which I've found uh, in the church and which I think is uh, very interesting that many of the frescoes show our human life as a preparation they show what one does in one's ordinary life and it's a preparation and then it's, they show death as a passage and then the next um, part of the painting is usually what in Christianity is called resurrection, which we would call transcendence. So life on the base of a preparation would be showing human life in its best aspects. Naturally, there are terrible aspects of human life. We all know that. And... Uh, or it was witnessed here in Germany with a vengeance um, 50 years ago but uh, that is shown in its best aspects which has the uh, um, parallel in the Buddhist teaching as what is called in Pali Sila the virtues or the morality or the uh, goodness that one can practice. So that's in the frescoes. One has to crane one's neck to see them, but they are very, very beautiful. And um, then, death as a passage. It's not so much in Buddhism that it has to be the physical death. And I have yet to ask somebody in the, uh, from the Christian tradition whether it is only meant as death, as a physical death. What we mean by death is the death to the ego. And obviously, all the Christian mystics have written and um, talked about that and practiced that. And then the resurrection is the transcendence of the being just on the human level. So, I find it, I personally find it interesting, but more than that, I find it extremely uh, heartening that there are really no essential differences. The difference which we have is a matter of method. 
And that's all I can teach you. I can't teach you any wisdom. It's impossible. I cannot even teach you concentration. You all have to do that yourselves. All I can do is teach you methods. And the Buddha had many, many methods. And there we have an essential difference. We have methods. Methods which are explained, which are easy to understand, but not that easy to practice. And particularly not that easy to practice because one needs a fair bit of willpower. Willpower and determination to keep on practicing. There's just no way of doing it once or twice or when there's a little extra time. It's got to be done all the time. And that's where the difficulty lies. But other than that, it's not really something that not all of us could achieve because if it was, the Buddha would have wasted his time. He was teaching people just like we are, ordinary people. And he did that for 45 years of his life. And if he didn't think and knew that it was possible for everyone to achieve total liberation and freedom, complete ending of all problems, of anything that would be negative in oneself, he wouldn't have done it. He did say, there are only a few people with little dust in their eyes. It's one of the titles of one of my books, Little Dust. But then, who knows who belongs to those few people? We can all hope to belong to them. It's mainly a matter of willpower. And willpower is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Sometimes it's translated as energy, virya, but um, I think willpower makes it much clearer. The word willpower is much clearer. It, uh, the word energy is a bit loaded with uh, all sorts of meanings and nobody knows exactly what it really is. Is it coming up the spine or is it something comes from outside? <coughs> what is it? Well, it's willpower. Then we know what we're talking about a little better. And this is one of the things which is also very, very important and valuable in the Buddha's teaching. There's no doubt about it, what he's talking about. There's absolutely not a shred of doubt what he means and what he has tried to teach. So anyone that really wants to know can know. But that's of course only a first step, but a very essential one. It's very essential to know. So if we don't know, we don't know what to do. Uncertainty doubt, difficulty, and doubt very often about one's own abilities. This is something I would like to mention right now. Doubt about one's own ability to meditate. 
is extremely damaging. Try not to think that way. Everybody can meditate. It's a matter of time. And it's a matter of application and it's also a matter of the heart. It's not the mind, it's the heart. And this is an important aspect of the meditative path. We need both. First, we have to understand the method. Well, we need the mind for that. Huh? We have to understand what's being said. We have to understand why we're doing what we're doing and also how to do it. Once you've understood that, then comes the difficult part. That's the easy part. I'm sure there's nobody here that isn't going to understand. It's the easy part. Then now comes the difficult part. The difficult part is to be able to open one's heart sufficiently so that one can actually love what one is doing. And this is what I'd like to recommend to you. If you can love sitting down to meditate without any expectations, just doing it, then you've already got at least halfway to concentration. Because we have both. We have heart and mind. In the Buddhist terminology, mind encompasses both anyway. For us it's easier when we say heart and mind. Eh? Mind, the thinking, logical, analytical part, and heart, the one that has a feeling, the emotion. <coughs> if we don't use both, the logical, analytical part, and the emotional part of ourselves, we're missing out. Half of it, half of ourselves, is not actually engaged. We can't do this with half a person. Whatever we do, be it meditation or anything else, it has to be done wholeheartedly. And as we do it wholeheartedly, then we have a very good chance to widen the horizon that we look at, to deepen the perspective, and eventually to see ourselves and the world in a totally different light. Once that happens in a totally different light, then that those things which we now call problems or which give us a certain inner anxiety or which are wishes, which are unfulfilled, all that falls away. That inner anxiety, that's what brings us to meditation, whether we know it or not. That inner anxiety is human heritage. Everyone who's not enlightened has it. We can call it whatever we wish, but I think inner anxiety is a good uh, name for it. It uh, certainly has an, a meaningful um, application. Now, we don't always know it. We very often don't know that we've got it because we have pleasant sense contacts. It's all very nice. It looks beautiful out there. The scenery is gorgeous. 
the uh, food is good the people are friendly we don't have any tummy ache or headache or no flu or whatever we can even sit so what's with inner anxiety so all that changes the knees start to hurt the uh, meditation is going the way I wanted it to go what I'm hearing goes against those things I believe in and all of a sudden things aren't wonderful anymore they're just the opposite so what do we do when that happens five minutes ago everything was wonderful now it isn't it must be somebody's fault somebody did it to me our spiritual path starts when we know that nobody did anything to us nothing at all ever we're all doing it to ourselves now obviously that isn't going to stop us from doing it to ourselves but it's going to stop us from blaming somebody and it's going to stop us to look for outside causes we're going to start looking for inside causes and that's what we're going to do here we're going to look for the inside causes and when we find even one and we might think oh that's terrible I didn't know I had that we should never think that way we should think that's wonderful I found one isn't it marvelous now I can do something the formula is recognition no blame change and recognition does not mean suppression we'll go around on that I'm sure but I'll just repeat it recognition does not mean suppression recognition means knowing and not blaming oneself but trying to change it so when we come to that point where we have a better look inside of ourselves any time we find something is a moment for joy the more joy we have the better we can meditate joy is an essential aspect of meditation joy belongs to meditation we always hope that meditation is going to bring us joy well I hope so too that it will do that for you but if you don't bring some joy to the pillow that's very little chance <laughs> bring it with you for wherever you can find it mostly it's to be found in your own heart of course and how do we do that if we don't feel joyful well first of all we can be extremely grateful that we have this opportunity of a two and a half thousand year old tradition which has been constantly propagated and transmitted from teacher to disciple and is alive today for us it's here we can use it it's got all the explanations now that gratitude brings joy gratitude brings a loving heart the heart is engaged when there is gratitude I cannot recommend enough to start your meditations with a feeling of gratitude if it isn't that that you have this marvelous chance to get near to this traditional teaching then 
I'm sure you'll find something else to be grateful for. Whatever you can find, it opens the heart. And this is what I was saying and like to repeat. Sure, the mind has to concentrate. The mind has to understand what the method is and how to use the method. But the heart has to be open so that it can become wholeheartedly. I have often said, mostly in German if I remember right, that listen with the heart. Don't just listen with the mind. When one listens only with the mind, there's so much already in the mind which is totally opposed to spirituality, totally opposed to the way to transcendence that the mind can very often not grasp it. We hear the sound, but the ear can't grasp the meaning. Ear hears, hears sound, nothing else, no meaning. The mind gets the meaning. If the heart isn't open, the mind can't get do it alone. To listen with the heart is a totally different proposition. It has feeling in it. It has an emotion of devotion in it. Devotion giving oneself to that which one has committed to do. Obviously, there will be difficulties in the meditation. We're going to have interviews and try to help you as much as we can. We'll talk about the interviews tomorrow. One thing which is very essential, and I'm sure Gudrun has mentioned it, but because it's so important, I'll mention it again. Noble silence. So that we can figure out what's going on inside of ourselves. In the first two or three days, what's going on inside of ourselves will be almost incessant chatter. One can't stop it just by wanting to. But at least we can stop the outward discussions. Because when we discuss with others, we then also have their opinions, and then we also have their ideas and then we don't work just with our own but with at least that of another person it becomes very difficult to concentrate at all and this is the way the world lives there is incessant chatter in the world if we don't have somebody to talk to all you have to do is press a button and uh, I almost said the idiot box the TV goes on, and, uh, and then there's incessant chatter there. By accident, I watched a show the other night. The accident was that there was supposed to be something decent on, but it wasn't. Anyway, it was an eye-opener. I hadn't seen television in a long, long time. I thought it was absolutely dreadful. I mean, it was just news. It wasn't, uh, you know, like a, a, a crime story or anything like that, although that happened to be in it too. It was just news, but I thought it was just the sign of our times. So incessant chatter, it takes a while. 
to stop. Notice it. Don't blame it. It's there. We can't change it just like that. But we're going to be here long enough so that's going to stop. It will, first it will stop uh, completely. It will sort of um, um, slow down. It will get less and less because there aren't that many new sense contacts happening. There are some, but not so many. There's no newspaper, no telephone, no mail, no um, uh, TV. There's no conversation. So the input is greatly reduced. We're not going to be play policemen. Noble silence is an important feature of an intensive meditation course. If one really wants to learn meditation, practice it or improve it, either way, noble silence is essential. And as I said, the silence is first outward. It will eventually become inward. And as it becomes inward, and we can actually meditate and not use the methods anymore, we will know why. We're not, nobody's going to go around and uh, say, be quiet, be quiet. Nothing like that. You've come here out of your own free will, and you're going to meditate out of your own free will, and these are all the uh, assistance and the support systems that have been tried for m- a long, long time and found to be important. If you want to make notes about those things that you hear and are afraid to forget, that's a good idea. Do it. There's no nothing to stand in the way of that. Um, There are some uh, diaries in the uh, bookshop that Gudrun is uh, in charge of down in the other house. And if you want a little diary to write down things, that is only recommended. Because you may think, oh, this is important, but you can't um, remember it. So if you've written it down, it's much easier. You don't have to do that. If you don't like writing things down you don't have to it's just another possibility it's a even if you do buy yourself some books if you um, don't read during the course but leave the reading for after the course it's better if the mind says yeah I know it's better I can't do it. All right. It's okay. <laughs> Whatever. It's better. One of the great meditation masters in Northeast Thailand, he had a lot of um, Western students. He's dead now, Tanachan Shah. When the Westerners came to his monastery in Northeast Thailand, he f- actually didn't allow them to have any books for the first year. He said, read this book. And then, after you've read that for a year, maybe then you can read another book. 
Because reading a book is also a conversation, a conversation with that which the writer has put there. And this is what we're trying to do. We're trying two things here. And I'll talk about them in much more detail at another time. These are just general things to talk about. Calm and insight. Summertime Vipassana. Calm is what most people would like. They'd like to have a nice, quiet, joyful mind that they can have all the time, no matter what happens in the world. Sounds great, doesn't it? It's very much to be recommended to have that and to work for that. But it needs a total support system. The calm mind, which is samatha in Pali or samadhi, which is that which happens when the meditation comes together, needs a total support system. It doesn't happen by accident, and it doesn't happen on its own. And this is something I very often mention and would like to mention it here too, to make, um, to make that point. Westerners in particular would like to meditate. That's great. It's wonderful. It gives me a reason to be here. Otherwise I wouldn't be here. So it's, it's lovely that they want to meditate. But that isn't the way it works. Unless meditation is embedded in our whole spiritual discipline, it will never come together. And this is what is so often forgotten or not even considered, particularly, of course, in the West. In the East there are other problems. But our problem usually is that, yes, I like to meditate, never mind all the rest of the stuff. doesn't work. It has to have the purification system of heart and mind with it. And it also needs a very good look at what's going on inside of oneself, which is the other step of wisdom inside. And if we, we're going to practice, of course, all three. We're going to practice the uh, concentration part, but we're going to practice it together with the inside part. And we're also going to practice the purification part. We're going to, these are the three parts of the teaching in Pali, Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. And these three parts of the teaching have to be included so that meditation has, so to say, the two legs that it can stand on. It has to have the purification as one leg, and has to have the inside as the other leg, and then it can rest on that. And once it rests on that, then it brings to the mind the ability to have flexibility, and it has also the ability to bring to the mind a way of opening it and showing it totally new horizons. But it has to have those two as underpinnings. If it doesn't have that, it doesn't come together. It can accidentally come together. And it will not have the impact, the results, the actual effect that it could have. 
the actual effect that meditation should have eventually, not tomorrow morning or not the day after, but eventually, is that the mind is unaffected by outer situations, that it stays on an even keel, that it has, so to say, like um, a rock-like quality where it can be at ease. Self-confidence is part of that. And that's why I also said to you, don't think this is difficult and I can't do it. Or, which is very common, the one that's sitting near me, oh, he or she can really sit and I can't. Who knows what they're doing? You can't tell. (coughs) The only way we'll ever find out what they're doing is they talk about it. Otherwise, how do we know? It's no use thinking about somebody else can do it better, can sit nicer, is uh, more uh, apt to uh, have um, talent for that. It's totally irrelevant. Any human mind can do it. It's a matter of application. And maybe another thing that all human minds have in them, whether we voice it, whether we admit it or not, all human minds have in them, I want to be happy and I want to have inner peace. And that's completely valid and completely possible. And having come here to this meditation course, one should assume, rightly or wrongly, I don't know, that one has already found out that what the world offers is not going to supply what we want. The supply of inner peace and inner happiness just isn't there. We can have it, but through different ways. And having found out about that, within oneself makes it possible to go on the spiritual journey. The spiritual journey is the journey within. Find out what makes us tick. It's very interesting to find out. Nothing could be more interesting. It's not always wonderful what makes us tick, but that doesn't matter. The main thing is we find out. It doesn't change from yesterday to today what makes us tick, just because we start looking. It's exactly the same thing that made us tick yesterday, what makes us tick today and tomorrow. But maybe the big difference will be that we know what it is, which we didn't know before. And that is the inside pathway. The inside pathway is supported by other methods, by methods of contemplation, which we'll all do. We're going to do all the methods. The uh, pathway to calm has other methods, which we'll all do in order to have that opportunity. But even the Buddha said about himself, I'm only the shower of the way. That's all. Just the shower of the way. The rest is up to each person. You have seen that we have a schedule 
which we'd like you to follow. If you have any physical reasons why you can't join certain meditation periods, that's fine. Take a rest when you feel that you that, it, that your physical uh, abilities are overtaxed. Try to join all the all the group sittings and the individual sittings as much as you can. The time of a course like this passes so quickly that when we first start and when we finish, it almost, in hindsight, appears to be one day only. I've been doing this for 20 years. I really know what I'm talking about. It just goes so quickly. So use the time. It's the only time we've got. Everything else, the past, it's all down the drain. <laughs> it's all memory. Human memory is notoriously bad. Very poor. But even if it was good, it's, it's gone. And the future is just a hope. When it comes, it's a present. It never, it never actually can be the future. It can only be the present. So if you do that, that's another support system. Be in every moment. This is the moment. Look at the moment. And as you look at the moment, you have no problem. Because a moment does not provide problem. Expectation provides problem. Result thinking provides problem. Um, resistance provides problem. Comfort seeking provides problem. But being in the moment provides no problem whatsoever. Nothing. Already for quite a long time. We'll just have to bear with the next explanation with patience and uh, maybe um, just send out your thoughts of loving kindness towards those who have not practiced much at all and wish them the very best results in their meditation, wishing them also that they're not going to think of results. <laughs> One is a great detriment to meditation to think of results because if we think of results we can't attend to the meditation <coughs> I'll just explain right now two methods which we're going to use and then we're going to do a short meditation together and a loving kindness meditation and then off to bed to the gong goes in the morning. You won't be able to sleep longer than that anyway. The, that the church bell at five o'clock makes an <laughs> infernal record. So um, uh, it's actually quite pretty, but it does wake you up. So um, as no, this is very, very useful too, of course, for a meditation course. We have two methods which we're going to use almost immediately, one immediately, one almost immediately. And uh, I'll explain both of them right now so that um, you're not left in no doubt what to do. 
First thing is Anapanasati, mindfulness of the breath. Sati, S-A-T-I, is mindfulness and Anapana in breath, out breath. That's the method, just the name, mindfulness of the breath. We use the breath because it is the most traditional of all the methods. The Buddha taught 40 methods of meditation. But obviously we can't begin to discuss 40 methods. We'll never discuss anything else and we won't do anything. So we'll start out doing one. And uh, one other one, which is complementary really to it. The um, breath is very useful as a method. For one reason, we can't forget. I mean, breath is always there. There's nothing to forget about it. There are other things that are easy to forget, but breath itself can't forget. Secondly, it means life. Without breath, no life. So there's a possibility of being grateful. If the gratitude is in the heart, as I said before, it's easier to meditate. So if you don't feel the gratitude for the tradition that you are um, getting near to and that you are partaking in and that it is a way out of all human problems, you can be grateful to your own breath. It's keeping you alive. If it wasn't going in and out, we did in two minutes. So this is also a very helpful way of thinking of the breath. And thirdly, the breath is intrinsically connected to the mind. When we are in a hurry or excited, the breath is heavy and sometimes also quite fast. When the mind becomes quiet and peaceful, then the breath becomes quiet and peaceful. So that when the method has done its duty and we can actually get in to the meditation, it, the breath gives very definite signs that this is now happening. So it's a very useful meditation method. Basically, we watch the breath as it goes in and out of the nostrils. If there's anybody that has asthma and can't do that because of that, or a very bad cold and can't feel the breath at all, then we can use the rise and fall of the stomach, which rises and falls with the breath. But this is only an alternative. I prefer to teach as it goes in and out of the nostrils. But as I say, asthma or a very bad cold prevent attention on that. For those of you who have already meditated, you don't need to use any of the support systems. But for those of you who are new at it or have done very little, there are five helpmates, so to say, for watching the breath. The first one is counting. One on the in-breath, one on the out-breath. Two on the in-breath, two on the out-breath. No more than ten. And starting again. The second one would be a word. Now that 
could be as equal to a mantra. If the word buddho is meaningful to you, use it. Because it has a connotation. It means to the Buddha. Maybe you can think of giving your concentration ability as a gift to the Buddha. Buddha not being necessarily a person or a statue, certainly not a statue, but the enlightenment principle that we all have within us. If that word is not meaningful to you, don't use it. You can use, for instance, love and peace. You can use love on the in-breath, peace on the out-breath. If you have some favorite words, use them. Or word. A word should preferably be of two syllables. No longer than that. Because in and out. You can choose one if you like. But love on the in-breath and peace on the out-breath can be very helpful. The third possibility is if you're visual. A person who is visually inclined would find this very helpful. Anyone who is not visual would find it difficult, so it's no use even attempting it. It's imagine that the breath is coming in on a soft ocean wave and going out again with the soft ocean waves. Ocean waves are rhythmic and the breath is too. So if you can visualize that easily without any difficulty, use it. It can be extremely helpful. These are all supports for attention on the breath. If you have already meditated a long time and you have already established your practice, you know very well what to do. And number four, the sensations. There's a sensation at the nostrils when the wind of the breath hits the nostril. Sometimes you can follow that sensation into the nose, into even the uh, uh, forehead. You might even feel it in the throat. Wherever you feel the sensation as a support system to keeping the mind in its place. That's all it is. They're all support systems. For those of you who want a support system but have already meditated a longer period of time, you can watch beginning, middle, end of breath. Beginning, middle, not so difficult. But end, and then beginning again, needs a fair bit of mindfulness, of attention. It's for those who have already practiced mindfulness and meditation for a longer time. That's only an additional possibility. So we have counting, word, picture, sensation, or beginning, middle, end. When you use beginning, middle, end, you can say one, two, three. Beginning, middle, end is much too long. You'll never make it. The second, third breath will have gone by. Or you need to say nothing at all. It doesn't matter. One of the very important things, and this might apply to everybody tonight, because the mind has had an awful lot of input just trying to come here. Label the content of the disrupting thoughts. 
when the mind will not stay on the breath and one could well imagine that everybody is going to be affected by that tonight label the content now the labeling of the content is the inside part of that aspect of meditation and that labeling can be future, past dreaming, fantasizing, planning, hoping nonsense later whatever the very first label that comes to mind is a correct one don't try to find a better one that's a new thinking process then just that one label now this labeling process especially for those of you who haven't done it before it's the most important aspect of leading a spiritual life within the materiality and all the other aspects of daily living don't have to be in a monastery for that one has to be in a meditation course for that labeling the contents of one's thoughts makes it possible in daily life to substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome we're going to talk about that at more length at another time but here I have to give you that instruction as part of the meditation process here we substitute all thoughts with attention on the breath now that a new thought is coming up that can't be helped the old one has been substituted and learning to label one's thoughts it makes all the difference in one's daily life one is no longer inclined to blame anyone else oneself has been thinking it whatever was the trigger that is of no importance and the formula for that is don't blame the trigger the triggers are manifold there's no end to them they're all over and we can always find a new one once we've got rid of another one but it's useless the only really useful thing is to see that's what I'm thinking so if we learn that in meditation it's possible to continue that then in daily life very important aspect of the meditative practice now that's one method anapanasati mindfulness of the breath with one of the support systems choose one and you stay with it until let's say after breakfast tomorrow and then you don't like it anymore and take another one I can assure you it's not the method it's the mind but it doesn't matter one has to find a method that one likes because it's easier for the heart to open then if the heart has any um, resistance it's more difficult and we'll also be doing walking meditation now seeing the weather is beautiful we're going to have the inner courtyard of the monastery for our walking meditation
which is a very special privilege because usually that inner courtyard is locked. It's quiet and uh, it's quite beautiful. Everybody takes a walking path for themselves, 20 to 25 paces long, and makes a note where it starts and ends, maybe from one tree to the next, maybe from one window to the next, whatever it is. Maybe one puts one's sandals down, and we walk back and forth on that walking path. The eyes stay open and they go down in front of the feet. They automatically go in front of the feet. There's nothing we need to do about it. The hands should be held together in front of the body or in back. So because if they move about a lot, the arms, then that's also distracting. So we should keep them together in the walking. As we start, stand still first, we also try to find a way to be grateful. Grateful for this wonderful opportunity where we can just attend to ourselves and our own inner development without any interference from outside. The only interference that we have comes from inside, from ourselves. And that, of course, everybody has that, but we don't have outside interference. And then we're going to use the six-point movement to attend to, which is a little more difficult than just three movements, but it requires greater attention, more mindfulness, and therefore should be a little more helpful in concentrating the mind. And it goes like this, that there is, first, we lift, the heel, then we lift the whole foot, then we put the foot in the air, put it forward, put the heel down, put the foot down. There are two movements to lift the foot, heel, foot, two in the air, up, forward, and two coming down, down, down. You can count one to six. If you only got five movements, never mind, don't worry, you'll find the sixth one. It's okay. And after a while, you don't have to count anymore because it becomes very mechanical. You can just do the movements. Now, exactly as with the breath, as you watch the breath moving, so you watch the foot moving. It's helpful to stand still when there are distracting thoughts. Nobody cares. Everybody is supposed to do their own meditation. It doesn't matter if you stand still a hundred times. Perfectly all right. And if somebody cares, it's their problem, not yours. And also, you can try and label. Very often, the standing still breaks the thought, and you can start again. It's a very uh, important method for two reasons. One is that we need a bit of a break from the sitting. And secondly, because we do a lot of walking in our lives, if we learn to be 
very mindful and attentive in walking meditation, we automatically become mindful and attentive in our daily movements. And that is also a great advantage on the spiritual path. So that will happen tomorrow, the walking meditation, in the six-point movement, two to lift the foot, two the foot in the air, two to get the foot down. And you can count in the beginning. Stand still if there's a distracting thought. Get your own walking path outside in the courtyard. There's one thing I was going to mention about the place here. When we, um, when I dreamt up the idea that because I don't want to travel so much, I'm going to invite my English-speaking students to come here and set a date for it. I didn't realize we were going to come to this monastery. I thought we were going to do it in Buddha House, but it's turning too much too small now. And so we didn't um, have any choices because we'd already given the date. And the dates we've given now are not holidays. So we're having the school children here. And they have something like 500 school children here. And the rooms you're occupying, they used to be occupied by the children. They were um, live-in students. But that's no longer the case. That's why we can come here. But they're still going to school here and still making the appropriate noises that school children make. Um, they are fairly uh, noisy bunch. So um, that only happens around noontime that they're making a lot of noise. So... I want to apologize for that. It wasn't our choice. It was sort of like a last-minute necessity. The last course which we had here, we had a choice, and we got the holidays, and it was very nice and quiet. They are only here uh, at noontime, four days a week. That is Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday and Friday. The other days they aren't here. They're not here on the weekend. They're not here on Wednesdays at noontime. So at noontime, you'll just have to uh, bear with it. It won't be meditation time. It will be a time when there's um, lunch and rest period. And we don't get much on this side. It's more when you walk through the courtyard and that sort of thing. So it's a, it's a pity, but it couldn't be helped. I just wanted to mention that, that uh, we have... You know, it was sort of like a last-minute arrangement, and that's why it happens this way. In order to start, we'll put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Now we'll think of ourselves as our own best friend. We'll try to feel what a best friend would feel. Loving attention, helpfulness, concern, 
understanding, acceptance and tolerance. care and concern we embrace ourselves showing our feelings of friendship for ourselves and feeling at ease and protected within that friendship. Now we'll think of ourselves as the best friend of the person sitting nearest us. And we embrace that person with the warmth of our friendship, the care and concern that we have for our best friend wanting to help Showing that person our togetherness, and seeing the joy that that brings. we think of our parents whether they're still alive or not and we are their best friend loving, helpful and concerned showing them that we're really standing by their side accepting in tune and seeing that brings joy to their hearts.
we will think of those people who are nearest and dearest to us those we might be living with and we are their best friend understanding them caring concerned loving them embracing them showing them our feelings recognizing the oneness, the togetherness. We'll think of our good friends, our relations, the people we know well, whoever comes to our mind. And we have a sincere feeling of friendship for each of them. Opening our heart. so that we can feel together with these people. Care for them, are concerned with their happiness. will think of all those people whom we meet in our daily lives our neighbors people we work with students, teachers, patients salespeople postmen Whoever comes to mind, who is part of our lives, and we are best friend of each of them, 
embracing them in friendship, showing them our wish to help, concerned about their well-being and happiness. And we feel that our heart goes out to them. Now we'll think of a difficult person in our lives, one whom we have been angry at, or whom we reject, or who's rejecting us, or if there isn't such a person, someone whom we don't care about either way. And we are that person's best friend. Letting our heart speak instead of the judgment of the mind. And we feel the ease and contentment that comes from letting go of any rejection and we can truly embrace that person We'll look into our hearts and see the warmth of friendship, of care and concern, and let it flow out of our hearts to the people near and far. First to those who are together here. Touching their hearts with our friendship and care and concern. And then to everyone who's in this monastery. A 
and then we'll let the warmth and friendship of our hearts flow out further and further to the people we know to those whom we know about whom we have seen or heard about and all those whom we assume to be there we let the warmth of our heart the friendship that it contains flow out like a golden stream touching as many hearts as possible giving the gift of our friendship We'll put the attention back on ourselves and we feel the warmth in our own heart and we realize distinctly that being our own best friend means giving the gift of our friendship to others and we can feel the joy that comes from loving and giving and we let ourselves be filled with that joy and embraced by it we have a sense of well-being and contentment arisen in our own heart May all people be friends with each other. <laughs>